Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. This week, open season on Rishi Sunak continues, but behind the proxy battle between Chancellor and Prime Minister, are the Conservatives busy blowing up their personal brand? They could get away with a certain callousness when they still had a reputation of being competent on the economy and the cost of living. What happens when they don't? New Statesman editor Jason Cowley joins us to talk about his new book, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England. Plus, cracks are emerging in Europe over sanctions against Russia. Are European nations doing all they could? And how do they balance pain for Putin with pain for their own citizens? And with Channel 4 set to be sold off to the highest bidder, what are our favourite ever shows from the broadcaster once known as Channel Swore? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Hello, thanks for joining us. Remember, if you enjoy The Bunker, you can keep us going by backing us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. You'll get the shows early, free of adverts, and you'll also get exclusive merchandise. You can back us for as little as £2 a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. There's a link in the show notes as well. Let's meet today's panel. First up, hello, welcome back to writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hi, Justin. Hi, Andrew. So there's always depressing news on Monday, and this week it is that Marine Le Pen will feature in the runoff with Emmanuel Macron for the presidency of France. It's a rerun of 2017, but it seems like Le Pen has successfully dissociated herself from her past admiration of Putin. Is France finally about to go in for that far-right experiment that it's been teetering on for the past few decades? I mean, hopefully not, although it is too close for comfort. Um, It's it's a really difficult situation to analyse in France, as it doesn't seem to conform to many of the stereotypical divisions in politics, which we see elsewhere. Uh, You know, Macron is most popular amongst over 65s, while Le Pen performs best amongst uh, 35 to 64-year-olds. So there's not that kind of boomer youth divide that we've seen in situations like Brexit and sort of war support in Russia and elsewhere. I think France often seems strangely, a strangely pessimistic country to us over here. I mean, I have a lot of French friends. I go there a lot. Um, and you go there, you know, the standard of living is much higher. Healthcare and social provision is way better than it is here. Paris, particularly in the last couple of years, really feels like it's buzzing and on the up. Unemployment is the lowest it's been since 2008. And yet there are these sort of persistent, seemingly intractable problems which really nag at people and I think almost seem to sort of like offend their sense of Frenchness and what France should be. You know, in Paris, you have very, very visible poverty and destitution that you just don't really see over here. You know, the banlows, the suburbs are still this byword for crime and poverty. No one seems to have challenged that. It's also very racially charged um, because of, you know, the history of colonialism and where a lot of those new arrivals ended up. And... I think they, the thing we often forget here, I think they were genuinely traumatized as a country, not just by the Charlie Hebdo and Bataclan attacks, but a series of absolutely gruesome Islamic terror incidents that have, um, occurred, you know, in the light of that, but have still been unfolding. The trials just concluded with the individuals who assisted in the murder of a priest in his church in Rouen a couple of years ago. Um, this stuff, I think, is all rolling the pitch for Le Pen, but hopefully it won't, uh, it won't pan out like that. We've got two weeks to find out how it's going to play out. Also back on the bunker, we have Guardian columnist Zoe Williams. Hi, Zoe. Hello. So we're going to be talking about uh, Rishi Sunak and the cost of living in some detail later. But today, this very day, pensioners and benefit claimants saw the value of their payments fall to the lowest point in 50 years. Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert guy, thinks civil unrest isn't far away. British people aren't very good at rioting, are they? Can you see that happening? I mean, there, were, there was civil unrest over petrol prices in the early 2000s. Sorry, I misheard you, and I thought you oh, said sorry. people aren't very good at writing, and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, no, that is also true. No, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, really, it's really perplexing what it takes for um, the British public to riot. And furthermore, it's very it's puzzling what it takes for the authorities to take it seriously right so i mean it's absolutely amazing as soon as you've got like heavy machinery and when i say heavy machinery i mean a car but better still a tractor they take you exceedingly seriously so if you have a kind of petrol strike or farmers striking or you know the countryside alliance even they didn't even arrive with tractors but because they're the kind of people who might have a tractor they were taken very seriously whereas civil unrest in a kind of sporadic um, you know, explosion of unhappiness, which you could see in, say, the 2011 riots. It was, it was, it, the jeopardy for those rioters was so, the punishments were so harsh and the jeopardy was so great. And even though it did spore from one city to another, it made no impact except to justify some really draconian policing and crime and punishment um, measures. So I, I you know, 
I don't know what the direct action is that Martin Lewis that would that would kind of iterate Martin Lewis's sense that people are just really kicking against how completely unfair this is. But I don't think it would be as simple. It certainly wouldn't be as simple as people just taking to the streets and Sunak suddenly deciding to to kind of finance to kind of run things in a different way. If he's still there, even that is. Our guest this week is Jason Cowley, editor of the New Statesman, and therefore sometimes my boss when I occasionally write for them. Welcome to the podcast, boss. <laughs> Very good to be here, Andrew. Very good. Uh, you just relaunched the New Statesman with a spanking new logo, uh, ambitions for it to punch as hard as the Atlantic on the world stage. Tell us a bit about this relaunch, because as an old magazines person, I'm always fascinated by these things. Yeah, we haven't we haven't called it a relaunch. What what mm-hmm. we did was create a new website and while we were doing that we thought we might as well redesign the print magazine as well so to bring the two together and the expansion of the new statesman has been very considerable throughout for our digital offering through the website and but we also want the the print magazine to continue and you know to invest in it but what we've done in recent times we've we've had a kind of internationalist turn over the last couple of years, we created a, a new international team under the leadership of Jeremy Cliff, who joined us from The, Econ- from the Economist. We have, we've hired Megan Gibson, who was previously foreign editor at Monocle. We've brought in Katie Stallard, who's based in Washington, but she, she used to be the Sky News bureau chief in Beijing and before that in Moscow, and she's a China expert. We've got a young reporter called Ido Bock, who's currently in Paris um, reporting on the French elections. And we have Alex Kruger's also joined us from the BBC, and she's a very experienced, experienced foreign affairs specialist. So what we wanted to do is, is take our journalism in a different direction, you know, remain true to our liberal sceptical politics, but try and push out beyond the UK, as, it, as indeed the Atlantic has done very successfully, um, pushing out from beyond, beyond the US. And so far, you know, the early signs are good. We publish a lot of... Um, internationally renowned writers such as Adam Tooze. Um, Adam's, Adam's stuff gets very widely read and shared and it's, it's, it's moving in the right direction. You know, we're still a, we still report on Westminster politics, but we're not fixated on Westminster politics. And we were once, I guess, defined some years ago as being a kind of Labour Party house journal, but we've left that behind you know, long ago as, 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 as we seek to be more ambitious in, in, what, in what we publish and, and, and what we're interested in. You took over as editor right, pretty much right after the financial crisis, and mm. circulation is uh, is pretty robust at the states and right, right now. Are bad times good for current affairs magazines by definition? They are. I mean, I, I think the last decade really has been a period of continuous crisis. If, if you think right back to the Scottish independence, well, first of all, austerity that followed the financial crisis, then the Scottish independence referendum, which came close to leading to the breakup of the British state. It was a narrow vote for the status quo, but very narrow. And it fired the um, ambitions of the independence movement. We then had a narrow majority for Cameron in 2015, which opened the way for the Brexit referendum in 2016. And you, of all people on this podcast, know, knew what happened then. Yeah. You know, we entered the Brexit wars for three years. And then we went straight into the pandemic for two years. And we've come out of the pandemic into this, into the into the most serious European war since 1945, all of which is good, of course, for journalism, particularly the kind of journalism which we do, which is cool and dispassionate and analytical and sceptical. And we like to think that we we sort of attempt to analyse and understand the big forces that are driving change in the world. So stuff happening is very, very good for the New Statesman. And it's enabled us to sort of redefine what we are and, and who we are and what we want to do as a, as a publication, indeed, as a team. And the team is growing um, pretty rapidly at the moment, which is, which is great. Good for your journalism, just bad for everybody else. With war in Europe, the worst cost of living squeeze in 50 years and existential threats on climate, the Conservative Party has been concentrating on the important issue, ensuring that Rishi Sunak can't become Prime Minister. Behind the visible squabbles, key tenets of the Thatcherite faith that they profess to adhere to are being trashed. 
Tax revenues are at the highest point in 70 years, and we've got a free-spending prime minister who, we discovered over the weekend, tries to prevent his chancellor from taking moves to balance the books. Are we watching the Conservatives breaking their own brand? Let's start off by talking about Rishi Sunak. Jason, this has been the weirdest Tory on Tory fight that we've seen since Sajid Javid was defenestrated by Dominic Cummings. Is it just froth, or is there something real happening here? There were whisperings of a, of a feud between 10 and 11 Downing Street. I mean, there's always, that, there's always tension between the chancellor and the prime minister, but we, we picked up considerable unease between 10 and 11 um, some time ago. And then Johnson received very lukewarm support from um, Sunak during the party gate or the, when the party gate um, scandal was at its height. And But it's not just froth because Sunak's the author of his own misfortune, isn't he, in, in this instance? I mean, you, if, you, if you look at, we published a very good piece on Sunak last Friday, I think it was, by Philip Collins. And Philip's argument was that it's, it was legally correct I mean, he, for, his, for his wife to have non-dom status. It was ethically dubious, but it was politically ridiculous. I mean, Sunak displayed a, a fundamental misunderstanding of politics and how to do politics, to think he could operate as chancellor and raise taxes, as he is with the national insurance hike, at a time, as you said, of the greatest, gravest cost of living crisis potentially since the 1970s, whilst ma- maintaining within his own household non-DOM status. But also, we understand, too, holding a green card um, for the United States. So one doesn't quite understand what he thought he was doing, what, what he was able to do. And we've seen, just as Sunak gave Johnson lukewarm support during Partygate, Johnson has now given Sunak very lukewarm support during this this what is a crisis for his his chancellorship. I'd be very surprised if Rishi Sunak, who was a very, very slick operator, and in the early stages of the pandemic, because of the success of the furlough scheme, was very popular with, with the public. But even before the latest revelations, his popularity had collapsed after a pretty disastrous spring statement. And I can't see how his he can recover those previous popularity ratings, or indeed he can recover his authority and credibility as as Chancellor. He does seem to be caught between two things, which is the public think that he and his wife are self-serving and Conservative MPs who are the real power makers on it think that he is just naive and incompetent at politics. Well, I have this argument with my husband a lot, which I think is like signalling a deeper argument between us, which I won't go into. But he always talks about experience with politicians. You know, this politician is experienced, this politician is not experienced. And I'm always really sceptical about that because I think it's a way of like, I think, you know, come on. I don't believe that people who've been in Parliament for 20 years are necessarily that much better than people who've been in for five years. It's just showing off, right? How much showing off do you need to do before you get experience? I'm afraid to report that I turn out to be wrong on this because it, it, Sunak's lack of experience, exactly as exactly as we've kind of just discussed with the sheer not knowing how it was going to play, the sheer lack of foresight, the absolutely cack-handed response to the weekend's news that he intends to launch an inquiry into into who leaked this, as though that could possibly boost his standing with the general public. It makes you think one of two things. Either he is incredibly, catastrophically inexperienced and he's probably not long for that role. Or, you know, we have to kind of brook the possibility that, this is a new brand of um, self-serving conservative, right? It's always been a, it's always been noticeable that most of their kind of long-term pledges, like leveling up, to to me seemed completely hollow and just a kind of really cheap parking tanks on Labour's lawn kind of move, and had absolutely no fundamental ideological basis. They're, they they don't make any iteration of what they want for the future besides the nonsense claims. And I genuinely think it just it might be we just might be in kind of new territory where they are there for kind of purely personal enrichment and advancement purposes. In which case, you know, he's teaching us a valuable lesson by not caring what we think of his wife's non-dom status. He's teaching us a valuable lesson when he responds in this in this really high-handed way. He's kind of teaching us not to expect him to behave like an old-fashioned chancellor with the nation's interests at heart. The idea of launching an inquiry 
very powerfully reminded me of Homer Simpson saying, I swear to God, Marge, on my life, I never thought you'd find out. <laughs> Sorry, what, what did you make of the line over the weekend that the attacks on uh, Murthy were, were racist and sexist? Largely well, again, for people who say, if you say anything these days, they call you racist and sexist. Again, I mean, I'm really keen to kind of move past the, the, the toxic fog of bollocks <laughs> because <laughs> the thing is you get this huge amount this kind of pretty patel says something terrible about refugees about you know gunboats in the channel and you say this is t- a terrible inhumane statement and you'll get tons and tons of tories saying you wouldn't say that if she was a man you wouldn't say that if she wasn't bame what the tactic is is to absolutely barefacedly use one's own principles of equality and and you know pluralism against us so to the extent that you can't say anything you know you're not allowed to criticize Nadine Dorries because you're being a snob you're not allowed to criticize Sunak you're not allowed to criticize his wife it it's a complete deployment it's a jujitsu deployment of our own values against us and it's time we kind of moved on I kind of I feel ridiculous even talking about it because it's obviously not motivated by sexism and racism the idea that she ought to pay taxes in the country that she lives in it's obviously not a racist or sexist position but we kind of tie ourselves in not saying oh no it's not because of that and uh, you know just because i don't like thatcher doesn't mean i'm a misogynist <laughs> they know that we're not misogynists they're just having a laugh it's because we're weak self-hating liberals where yeah. our, our weak points we're are all so on show weak. We're so weak. <laughs> we, need to, we, need to, we need to person up <laughs> Justin, it's been real fun watching ministers squirm over the weekend, but with so much of this stuff clearly being leaked from a place close to number 10, is it necessarily the best move for Boris Johnson's self-preservation, for him to paint senior conservative politicians as money-fixated global financiers right now? The person in the street is not necessarily going to make a distinction between Rishi Sunak's behaviour and the behaviour of the entire Conservative Party, are they? No, they're not. And I think this whole thing calls up the wide question of what the Tory brand even is anymore. Um, And I think this is an issue whose roots lie in the last election victory, where because of a very fortuitous lining up of circumstances, you know, Brexit, Corbyn, Johnson's own personality, a very odd and potentially very fractious coalition was pulled together, sort of papered over the cracks in the Tory party. But it's unclear... I think to anyone, what actually joins up Jacob Rees-Mogg with, say, the new intake of Redwall MPs or indeed their constituents. And it feels like at the moment, like so many of these rather odd things that the party keep getting themselves into and the rather strange positions they keep adopting are an attempt to cast around for something which can become that glue that kind of coheres the party. Yeah. I mean, Jason, I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, the question of, uh, you know, the Conservatives have always marketed themselves as a party of low taxation, yet now we learn from recent Labour list surveys that uh, increasingly they're identified as the the party of high taxation. If you're going into a general election in contradiction to your key brand values, when you're taking the highest share of national income uh, since the early 1950s, can you square that circle? Can a, you know, if a party goes in to fight an election so contrary to what it's supposed to stand for? I think I think the Conservative Party, all parties are big coalitions, and I think this party is no different. And I've I've always seen conservatism as a as a disposition, really, rather than as an ideological commitment. But there are there are ideologues within the Conservative Party. I thought there was a very revealing exchange a, a year or so ago on Twitter when Steve Baker, the libertarian right wing Conservative MP, tweeted, "This is what we believe." And it was a photograph of books by Karl Popper, Milton Friedman, Hayek, Robert Nozick and others. And Danny Kruger, who's a kind of Christian conservative communitarian MP and is part of Michael Gove's levelling up unit. And I'm not as sceptical as Zoe about levelling up, but but Kruger's part of that um, group. And Kruger responded, actually, no, this is what we believe. And it was a photograph of books by Robert Putnam Adrian Pabst, who's a kind of post-liberal thinker, Roger Scruton and others. So what you saw at play in that exchange was the kind of contradictions and stresses within modern conservatism between the kind of ideological right wing of the party that's committed to kind of limited government and low taxation and so on, and a more communitarian conservatism, which Kruger and others represent. And then, then into the mix comes the strange 
and chaotic and unpredictable figure of Boris Johnson, who's not really anything. I mean, Johnson has an instinct for power. He's a scoundrel. He's erratic. But he's also non-ideological. He's pragmatic. And he doesn't mind spending money. But what, he, what Johnson wants to do is win and he wants to stay in power. That makes him a very dangerous opponent for the left. It also means he's very flexible. And therefore, he doesn't really know or care, I don't think, what the conservative brand is. He's certainly not a fiscal conservative in the way that George Osborne was. And it, it enabled him, I think, to go into those former Labour seats in the Midlands and the North, those red wall seats, and win them in 2019. And there's no guarantee that Labour will get them back. So I think I'm not entirely sure what the conservative brand is beyond being pragmatic. And it kind of bends with the wind. But I think you're referring to an almost a stereotypical Thatcherite image, mm. aren't you, of the, of the kind of 1980s conservatives? Is that, yeah. is that, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, and, and that's the kind of thing that current conservatives sort of have to sort of demonstrate fealty to. But, but, but do they really feel that, though? I mean, I don't get any sense that they do feel they have to abide by. I think ever since there was the great cull around Brexit, they, they, they don't feel like they have to maintain a through line between them and their forebears. They just don't have that. They don't have that amount of. I mean, it's always been a real thing on the right that they don't feel like they have to be consistent the way the left does, yes, right? Yes. So they, 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 so one minute they can say the EU is evil because look what they did to Greece, but the week before that they were saying the Greeks are on their knees because they're all really lazy. They absolutely don't care whether today's position matches yesterday's, but it's quite stri- It's quite it's quite staggering to see that play out across a whole party. They do not care whether this Conservative Party looks like the Conservative Party of 92 or 97 or any other time. They just don't care. So when you get a kind of young Red Wall MP who's all like, oh, Thatcher's my idol, you kind of think you're, you're, you're in the wrong gig, mate. But, but you know. <laughs> Jason, I mean, uh, progressive <clears throat> social democracy is the new statesman's beat. And progressive social democracy has found it really, really hard to kind of lay a glove on this version of the Tories because they are shapeshifters. As the economic circumstances tighten, as the cost of living crisis worsens, does this open up a bit of a window for that old school progressive social democracy to finally take a bit of shape and to, and to lay a glove on these conservatives? Do you think? You would think so potentially, but I think all across Europe, we're seeing a slight revival of um, social democracy in the Nordic countries, in Germany, you have the Social Democrats and the Greens in power in Spain and Portugal. There was a period five or six years ago where Social Democratic parties and parties of the centre-left had been absolutely routed and they were losing everywhere. That's not the case. Macronism is a kind of centrist phenomenon in France. The French socialists were absolutely obliterated in the first round of the presidential vote yesterday, although the Mélenchon left came third, but the radical left did very well indeed. But Labour has its problems because of the fragmentation of the British state. If you had a more coherent Britain or a more coherent United Kingdom, you could see the potential for a revival of moderate social democracy. But what complicates that revival is Scotland and the power of the SNP. If you think back to the 2015 general election, which followed the independence referendum in 2014, Ed Miliband's Labour went into that election with 41 of the 59 Scottish Westminster seats, and they came out of it with one. There's no coming back for Labour after such a cataclysmic defeat. So Keir Starmer will have to win in England if Labour to have any chance, even of having a hung parliament in two years. And that's, that's, that's deeply challenging, I think, for Labour. Although, as you say, the circumstances, they look propitious, I think is the word, for a potential social democratic revival. And I think the Conservatives understand that. You say they're shapeshifters. And I think the whole levelling up project, they've got their best brains in that unit under Gove, Michael Gove. They've got Danny Kruger, who I mentioned earlier. They've got a northern um, a, a Neil O'Brien, who's from a, a northern background, comprehensive school, went, went to Oxford, former head of policy exchange. Very, very clever man. And I think most significantly, they've got Andy Haldane, who's not a man of the right at all. He's, in many ways, he's a man of the left former chief economist of the Bank of England and now chief executive of the RSA. But he's inside that unit. Yeah, I know. But you've heard all the rumours coming out of that unit, right? So what, the so the, the paper, the Andy Haldane's paper, which was basically just bits cut and pasted off, off the Wikipedia. I mean, nobody even, nobody even believes that he 
well, nobody believes his heart's in it, put it that way. I mean, it was it's, it's like really, really sketchy sixth form essay stuff. And, you know, the Treasury aren't taking their calls. Their only concrete act so far is to change all the department's email address to <laughs> at levelingup.gov.uk. I mean, it, it's a shower in there. Now, I'm not... You're certainly right about the blockage from the, from the Treasury, Zoe. That's absolutely correct. But again, that brings, that brings us back to Sunak, doesn't it? Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not denigrating any of those people you mentioned, apart from Michael Gove, and we don't have time for me to start denigrating him. <laughs> um, but I do. Th- th- there is a, a kind of level of chaos and inaction, and you know, headlessness in that unit, which makes which I always suspected the agenda wasn't serious, but now I'm sure of it. Let's talk about England then. Our guest, Jason Cowley's new book is entitled, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England. It's a travelogue, not so much of locations as the themes that make up the largest country in the UK. We meet the imam who stopped a far-right terrorist from being beaten to death after he drove a van into a crowd in Finsbury Park. We meet the Lancashire woman who berated Gordon Brown so badly it damaged his career. A Chinese cockle picker who survived the disaster in Morecambe Bay and the people of Button Bassett who bore witness to the repatriation of dead British soldiers from Iraq. It is vivid and readable, but it's quite uncomfortable for Remainers like me because it makes it clear that the people who voted for Brexit might not have had the right answer, but they clearly had a case. They've been ignored and talked over by a political class that thought it knew best. Jason, it's a very enjoyable read. You even quote Japan in there. The ghost of Tony Blair's life grew wilder than before. Which, which... <laughs> oh, that, that's, a very, that's a very smart spot by you. Yeah, I, I've dated myself and you at the same time. <laughs> what, what made you want to write it? What uh, drew you to do this? Well, I've spent I spent decades wanting to to bring Japan references into my into my <laughs> writing, so I, I succeeded. That that comes in the section on the excellent cultural critic Mark Fisher. Yes, who was also obsessed with the Japan song Ghosts. I mean, I've been worrying away at the English question for a long time um, in some of my writing in, in the Statesman, and the book's really about what George Orwell called the social atmosphere of the country. I wanted to write about some of the big themes of the last sort of. 20 years really since since the election of tony blair in 97 and the book the book begins really there and goes right through to the to the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic but i wanted to write about some of the big events such as the war and its consequences but i didn't want to write about them directly i wanted to write about them obliquely because i was interested in as i say the social atmosphere of the country an orwellian phrase so that was that was the beginnings of the book. And I wanted to, rather than write polemic or political analysis, I wanted to tell stories because I think the stories we tell tell us who we are. And that's really that was really the, the beginning for the book. One of the key points in the prologue almost is that you talk about your own aunt's disillusion, which crystallised around the closure of her local GP surgery, the decisions made by a US-owned healthcare chain, people like her can't travel, decisions about their lives being made thousands of miles away. Did these stories give you pause to think about your own political past? Yeah, that story of of my aunt, whose local GP surgery was closed, um, ultimately we discovered by um, a conglomerate in the USA. I mean, how does that happen? A little community GP service that was opened in 1955. We grew up, well, I grew up in Hollow Newtown, where my aunt still lives. She's the last remaining member of of our family still living in the town, and she's 93. And the Hollow was a kind of utopian um, settlement established um, after the Second World War to house people from the East End and the poorer parts of North London whose houses and properties have been bomb-destroyed. And it was part of that whole post-war Attlee settlement, what, what Clement Attlee called the kind of the building of the new Jerusalem. And my my parents, after they were married in the 50s, 1950s, came out to live in Harlow initially in a little council house. And then we, we moved to, our, um, to a quiet cul-de-sac in the, in the early 70s. But that was what formed me from, from a young age, living in, living in um, Harlow. And someone once said to me, it was a bit like being in the GDR, <laughs> but without the Stasi. You know, everything was provided for you by the state, your schools, your, your, your public spaces, your libraries. And it was a social democratic ethos. And I, I mourn its passing. And also over the, over the years, Harlow suffered from underinvestment and a crumbling infrastructure. And that was something that has always informed my politics 
and has always in the background of anything of anything I write. That 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 social that sort of weakening of the social democratic ethos that defined the town in which I grew up and the people I grew up with. A big theme of the book is immigration. As as I said, we meet British Muslims, we meet Chinese cockle pickers, we meet Polish, other EU immigrants. Do you think that that the Blair government's decision not to exercise transitional controls, which is often presented as the big turning point in the entire debate about immigration, do you think that experiment failed insofar that it it did generate Brexit and that basically wrecked our political system? I think it was one of the causes of Brexit. You're you're referring to the 2004 when the so-called accession states in the east joined, joined the EU and the Blair government chose not to impose seven year transition controls. I think only the UK, Ireland and Sweden chose not to impose those controls. The big economies like Germany, Italy, Spain and France imposed those controls. And the Labour government at the time calculated, I think the figure was something between 8,000, 3,000, sorry, 8,000, 13,000 people would, would arrive from Poland to work in the, in the UK. And of course, we know what happened. Hundreds of thousands came very quickly. And the the pressure that put on on the country was great. And Nigel Farage said to me, and I spoke to Farage for the book, that he seized upon to the events of 2004 as a means by which to sort of re- reanimate the immigration debate, which he said had been, cl- as he saw it, had been closed down since the late 60s and Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. And I think that was a that was a mistake by the Blair government. But but more 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 importantly, I think was the dishonesty of that government to really speak openly about what the consequences of EU membership meant, just as just as they never really were honest about the, what what the consequences of the Iraq War would be. And all along, I think the theme of a theme of the book is the failure of elites from all parties to be honest with the people, to really to really speak openly and truthfully about the consequences of their political actions. I mean, look for example about the whole Brexit debate and what George Osborne and David Cameron were promising. They never prepared the British public for that, that binary plebiscite that ultimately decided our, our, our membership of the EU. And I, I, was a, I was a Remainer. I was never a Romaniac. And I, accepted, <laughs> and, I, and I accepted the result. But also what it made me think was more seriously about what had led to the impasse that we'd reached and what had led to the, to the polarisation in the country. And I returned to Harlow, but I also went out to other small towns and got a greater understanding that during the years of the, of the boom years, when the Blair government embraced kind of market driven globalization and a kind of new cosmopolitanism, something was stirring in the, in the, in the small towns, in the neglected new towns, in the conservative shires, in the rundown coastal regions. And it was a kind of inchoate English revolt. And I think Brexit was, gave it its kind of energy. The book is about England, and it's been said the Conservatives are now essentially an English nationalist party. Is it possible for other parties to access the English and Englishness from the centre or the left? Can you do Englishness without the nationalism? I think you can. I think you can do Englishness with the patriotism, as as Orwell as Orwell showed in, in his great essay. Um, Lyle and the Unicorn, which was published in 1940 as the bombs, sorry, he finished in 1940 as the bombs were falling on London during the Blitz. And um, Englishness, has, ever since the Act of Union, Englishness has been lost within Britishness. But as the movement for Scottish independence gains in confidence and becomes more assertive, I think it's forced upon the English a necessary reconsideration of who they are. There's, there's a comment from Orwell from 1940 that I like. He says... It is of the deepest importance to try and determine what England is before guessing what part England can play in the huge events that are happening. And I I use that comment at the beginning of the book, really, because that's what I'm trying to do similarly, is establish what England is and who the English are before guessing what part England can play in the huge events that, that, that are happening and have been happening. And I think it's necessary to find a more benign open, liberal, inclusive Englishness. I mean, what I like about Britishness, it's, an, it's, a, it's a non-racial, inclusive, civic identity under which, it's like an umbrella under which many different people of different ethnicities and religions 
and backgrounds can shelter. But when you move to Englishness, particularly for the left, because of its associations in the past with what empire, perhaps colonialism, even whiteness, there's always been a sense of unease and even unrest. But I think in recent years, particularly around football, we've seen a we've seen a flourishing of a new England and a new Englishness. Look at look at the the sense of hope that was channeled through Gareth Southgate's England team last summer during the Euros, which had been delayed by a year because of the pandemic. You know, that wonderful multiracial team, some of the players, Sterling, Rashford, Tyrone Mings are, act, are political activists themselves. And I think Southgate has thought very deeply about what it is he's, he's, he's attempting to do in his role as England manager. And he's thought deeply about Englishness and what it means. And he even wrote a very good essay just before the Euros, which was titled Dear England, in which he tried to place himself in a tradition. You know, his grandfather had served in the Second World War. He himself was a patriot. He described himself as a monarchist. He believed in his arms, in the armed forces. But at the same time, he was making a case for his players taking the knee and a kind of more diverse and dynamic Englishness. And he thought his young players in some way represented that new Englishness. So I think what Southgate showed is you don't have to choose between diversity and tradition. You can, if possible, bring them together in, in interesting ways. But that, these, these are just some of the themes I've been, I've been trying to explore through the stories I tell. Well, Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England uh, is available now. Jason, are you optimistic that you'll finally be able to answer Billy Bragg's plea and uh, present in New England or at least find one? <laughs> I think there's no answer to the question that I pose, but it's worth posing the question. Now, Western sanctions have been the key weapon against Russia since it invaded Ukraine in February. The EU and US have cut Russia out of international financial organisations like the SWIFT payment system. They've frozen billions in assets, they've severed ties with the industries and banned imports of goods, and they've targeted wealthy individuals from Putin's circle. Yet, there is evidence that the sanctions are not biting as hard as they could, and they're certainly not changing Putin's behaviour. Apart from the large economies that Russia can still do business with, including China, India, Brazil, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia, there are continuing oil and gas sales to Europe. Last week, the MEP Guy Verhofstadt blasted the EU's incremental sanctions on Russia, insisting that they were not working. Zoe Williams, is he right? Are Western sanctions not tough enough? I mean, I'm really worried about this, strategically speaking, just because it doesn't seem... To, the, the idea of completely effective sanctions relies on a Vladimir Putin who cares what conditions are like for the people in his country, and I don't think he does. So I would be, I, I would be much more in favour of sanctions which were personally painful to him and his inner circle and his kind of concentric circles around that simply because that's the way his motivation works you know he's been personally enriching himself for decades and that's what that's where his motivation is I think to expect him to react like a head of state worried about the man in the street is naive but that doesn't mean that the, the Europeans and, you know, arguably the Germans in particular aren't making self-interested calls based on what they're prepared to go short on. The EU, US and UK have sanctioned family members, uh, members of Putin and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's families last week. You're saying that this is actually more effective than restricting billions to going into uh, Rosneft and Sibneft and so forth. I would think there were there were the kind of the potential pressure points are mass resistance from within Russia um, and but intense pressure from import in you know stakeholders by which has meant his closest friends but the the point is is that if you make a sanctions regime which which re- results in a load of a, a kind of exodus of oppositional intellectuals stroke you know in, opinion formers from russia that doesn't help the case for public um protest and in and the, you know this is what the people are really worried about this that they what they're going to get is a load of people leaving who should be there to ferment the um, resistance, and 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 that is that is something really serious to consider because if you do get an exodus like that, then you're you're going to be waiting a long time for popular revolt. The EU has a new energy strategy, strategy Repower EU, which is uh, aimed to cut the EU's gas imports from Russia by two thirds by the end of this year, make Europe completely independent from Russian fossil fuels before 2030. That is quite a long time. 
In the meantime, do EU citizens have the stomach for yet more increases in gas and oil prices, uh, you know, on the back of the UK, U- Ukraine conflict, do you think? You know, it's it's very difficult to talk about it in terms of stomach and, you know, backbone and, and everything else, because we are simultaneously, you know, even prior to Ukraine, a lot of, con- a lot of countries were seeing um, energy hikes. And while the French state has obviously protected their citizens to a degree, to quite to a major degree from the price rises, obviously the UK government hasn't. And it will certainly get to a point very, very fast if there are price rises directly traceable to sanctions regimes where people will say, we just can't, we just can't afford it. This is, this is beyond what's possible, you know, per Martin Lewis's point, we're getting to the point where it's beyond what's possible. So I, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I would hate to see a situation in which the, in which pe- people were asked to choose between a, a kind of really doughty determination to bring the war in Ukraine to an end and their own ability to to sustain themselves because that is a false choice but nevertheless that's the choice that the discussion is kind of funneling us all into just in quick there are other avenues to put pressure on russia as the war deepens last week joe biden talked about cutting russia off from importing technologies like semiconductors and encryption security that they need to compete in the 21st century is technology a neglected area where sanctions could have real effect not just on what russia can buy and sell but what it can do um, it may be, and it's a slightly less sort of headline grabby immediate measure than the financial ones. So they were thinking about this from the very start. Ursula von der Leyen said very early in the war that these measures were designed to, as she said, cut off Russia's industry from the technologies needed to build a future. Uh, within less than a day of invasion, the EU and the US deployed almost identical export controls. White House was talking about, you know, choking off Russia's import of technological goods critical to a diverse side economy. The de facto ban is really wide ranging um, with what's in place already. And there are more things coming down the pipe all the time on this, uh, including semiconductors, telecoms equipment, software, including what you use for encryption, things like lasers, most aviation space systems and oil refining machinery, crucially. What's also been a key plank of this is that other important tech players, smaller but more important, such as South Korea, Japan and Taiwan, have also joined in the blockade. So to a very large degree, Russia is essentially cut off from much of the global high-tech industry. So what does this mean? So it knocks on in all kinds of odd ways. It's things. It's basically what underpins modern, industrialised, modernised life. So cloud computer centres, um, high-performance computers, Aviation defense technologies down to weird things like, you know, the systems that you run flight manifests off for passenger airlines, say oil machinery. Um, and it's crucially not just because of how they operate, because when you buy modern machinery nowadays, in large part, you're effectively leasing it and you're paying for the upgrades that will keep it working. So while the machines they have at the moment may still be working, they all require regular replacements, upgrades, patches. And those are the things they now can't uh, access. So the scope of these things is huge. So, for example, um, the Oracle system, uh, they suspended all updates and support to Russia. Now, Oracle is what underpins Sberbank's CRM system. That supports about 170,000 users within the main state bank. As soon as the upgrades are required on them, they won't be coming. So it'll essentially be like running a knackered old laptop where you never update the operating system or the virus shield. You know, it's asking for uh, asking for problems. The fear is that this would push Russia towards China and they could replace the technology from there. Most experts I've read seem to think relatively unlikely because for all their power and scale, China's technology is nowhere near as advanced as that of the West at the moment. Um, This is particularly true in things like semiconductors. Um, The thinking is that the leading Chinese semiconductor company, SMIC, is currently at least a few years away from manufacturing chips as advanced as those that are coming out of, say, Samsung in South Korea. Secondly, and this is, you know, the sort of odd uh, unintended consequences of uh, wartime, Russia's security services are apparently deeply concerned about the excessive reliance on China for critical technology, um, despite the a relatively friendly state of affairs between the two at the moment. They're very sceptical about how sensible a move that is to become fully enmeshed and dependent on uh, Chinese tech. And there's also finally the question, well, you know, do China want to risk their relationships with Western markets by um, supplanting Russia with these? The TLDR on that is the Russian war machine grinds to a halt because somebody didn't pay the Microsoft Office subscription. 
start, or they're running like a hooky version they download off LimeWire or something. But but it will it'll take a while. That's the thing. It's not. It doesn't happen in the way that you can drop a massive financial sector uh, sanction which just crashes an economy, you know, in 24 hours. It won't happen that quickly. Yeah, war on Windows 95. Jason, just in, in closing on this one, I mean, you're across vast parts of this with the, the statesman's international footprint. What's your perspective on the severity and effectiveness of sanctions from the West? I think the big problem, I think Paul Krugman said this, that Germany is the weakest link in the democratic world, world's response to Russian aggression. And the big problem is Europe's dependence on Russian energy. And, you know, what... What is the stamina for European populations, particularly as we later in autumn and winter, as, as it gets colder? You know, what sacrifices are people prepared to make if those if those economies have, have a rapid shift away from Russian energy? And the indicators are there's no immediate plan to do that. It's easier for the UK and US because the UK was, was, wasn't dependent on Russian energy at all or, or, or a tiny amount. So the UK and US have acted. But that's the big miss, I think in the in in the sanctions i think the point was well made by justin about china now what is the end point for putin's russia does it end up becoming a kind of chinese resource colony and that's that must be of serious concern with russia because i know there's a strategic alliance between russia and china now but historically they've had a very uneasy relationship and that that long border between China and Russia has always been one of deep concern for the Russians, and that must be that must be deeply worrying for the elites around um, Putin and the, and the Kremlin about where this where this will lead for Russia. Plus the the brain drain of which um, Zeri spoke. I mean, what happens if you do lose hundreds of thousands of of liberally liberal, intelligent, sophisticated middle class Russians? leaving the country in despair and, and, and abject kind of misery. You know, what happens then to a country which, which has made a very sinister turn towards authoritarianism in recent months and indeed recent years? It's been, it's been a journey on which Putin has been embarked long ago. So it's deeply concerning, but energy's, energy's the, big, the big miss here in the, in, the, in the sanctions, although there's no doubt that the West has declared economic war on, on the Kremlin. So this is where I should be printing hundreds of thousands of stickers that say Atom Craft Yar Bitter for Germans <laughs> to stick on the back of their cars. We're coming towards the end of the podcast. Finally, before we go, Channel 4 is about to be privatised, or at least that's the plan. We will wait to see if it actually happens. But while we can, we thought we'd finish the show by discussing our favourite Channel 4 shows and choosing which ones we remember most fondly. Justin, what's your favourite from the Channel 4 library? It, it can only be the apex of Western civilization, Eurofresh. Oh, right. <laughs> Very Romani, why? <laughs> I mean, just explaining the, the mastery of that show. Okay, it's uh, Antoine de Combe, Jean-Paul Gaultier, both absolute legends in their own right. And I was be like gooning around the continent Every week, meeting the absolute sort of like weirdo detritus of humanity with army of lovers playing us out <laughs> in tracks with a massive sort of drag Vogue house track. So yeah, in uh, in like 1992 in Twickenham when I was a uh, you know, little a uh, youth, this was a uh, pretty pretty strong meet. I can tell you, very powerful advert for freedom of movement. Zoe, how about you? Well, I really, I mean, I I like a lot of its output, but I really love Peep Show an unreasonable amount. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> I tried to watch it with my kid. Thinking this, thinking they're almost teenagers anyway, those two. So, like a teenage boy would really enjoy this. I had no recollection of how unbelievably filthy it was, <laughs> and not even in like a titillating way, in a completely like sordid, disgusting mark on the toilet, having a wank way. And it was just, <laughs> and I just have never seen anybody so appalled in my life. But anyway, that doesn't mean it wasn't great. It was great. It's exceptionally bleak about the truth about men. It really is. Did you get cancelled for showing this to your son? (laughs) Yeah, I think I already have been in-house (laughs) cancelled. Jason Cowley, how about you? What are your favourites in Channel 4? I remember, I'm old enough to remember the launch of Channel 4. I, I, loved, I loved those early those early months and years of, of Channel 4, particularly the Tube, the music yeah. show, live music show on, on a Friday night. I always absolutely loved that and looked forward to that. I also, as a big sports fan, I liked the way Channel 4 covered sport, 
particularly in the early years. I love James Richardson's little program he used to make about Italian football, the period when Gaza was playing, I think, for Lazio yeah. in Italy and Syria, Syria A was the kind of height of football sophistication back then. And James used to show, show a few clips, do some interviews, and then sit at a cafe drinking an espresso or cappuccino, kind of translating the Italian sports pages for us, for the viewers in the UK. And I thought that programme was incredibly smart, witty, and rather sophisticated, and indeed glamorous. And in so, Channel 4 as well, because it was something that nobody else was providing. Nobody else was doing it, and it was innovative as well. If you have fond memories of that, you really need to watch the BBC documentary about Gaza that starts this week because there's a fair bit of that show in there. Oh, is that? But also Great. Just, just as an image of what football was like in the 90s and also how the British tabloids conspired to absolutely destroy Paul Gascoigne. It is an incredible watch. Really recommend it. We talked about it on the Culture Bunker on Saturday. My choices, well, obviously, massive cliche, Brookside, world's greatest soap opera ever. <laughs> I too remember the beginning of the, the very first evening, Gizmo and Damon trudging around the building sites of Brookside Close swearing to horrify the uh, the tablets. Fantastic stuff. Obviously, The Tube, you and I are of a similar age, Jason. Well, I have to pick out, in the very early days of Channel 4, they had only a limited film library. They didn't have a lot to show, but they were very committed to world cinema. And they would show over and over again this insane Spanish short film about a guy <laughs> who gets stuck in a phone box and cannot get out. And his inability to escape from the phone box develops in a, a direction of horror that you cannot predict, but which will never, ever leave you when you see it. I believe it was called The Phone Box. And if you've seen this, you'll know exactly the one I'm talking about. Only half an hour, but honest to God, you will never get into a Spanish telephone box ever again. And most importantly, all these programs we just talked about, you don't get any of them on Netflix. This is not the kind of thing that can be funded by discretionary £7 a month. It has to be funded by a public service broadcaster. Margaret Thatcher's greatest creation, probably. Would we agree? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not prepared to say anything good about Margaret Thatcher at this time. <laughs> I, I just like thinking of her being indirectly responsible for Jean-Paul Gaultier and Army. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, I'll give you that. Fair dues. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you for joining us, Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Zoe Williams. Thanks for having me. And our special guest, Jason Cowley. Thank you so much, Andrew. Been a great pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and, of course, the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, The Culture Bunker is on every Saturday too. And another reminder, if you like this podcast, please do consider supporting us on the funding platform Patreon. You'll get earlier episodes, exclusive content, merchandise, and all manner of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You will also, as a supporter, get a shout-out from our panel. And here are some now. Hello, and thanks for your support to Julian Hay, James, and Jane Stevenson. Okay, hello, and best wishes from me to Ned Palmer, Sean, the anonymous Sean, and Tim Billington. And big thanks and hello from me to Barry Thompson, Chris Wimlett, and Michael McCluskey. We'll see you all next week. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Justin Quirk, and Zoe Williams. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers with Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.